0: Thank you, Pastor John. How incredibly creative you are, and uh, welcome Ben and Michelle to our church family and to our staff. Good morning, church. Good morning. It's so good to see all of you. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me, please, to chapter Two of the Book of Acts. We're going to look specifically this morning at verses uh forty two through forty seven Acts 2:42 through 47, and I have been reminding you over the last couple of weeks that I think it's incredibly helpful, as if, as you're coming in, you grab a note sheet, you fill in the notes that you hear, and then to look to apply them throughout the week. I think this is one of those sermons that could be quite helpful to go back and review because I will be presenting a bunch of nuts and bolts kind of uh, applications this week in this uh, sermon. As you are turning to Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, let me introduce the uh, the passage this morning by acknowledging that there is a whole lot of discussion that's been going on for years, for as long as I've been a pastor anyway, about what defines a uh, successful church. For some, success is all about uh, multi-million dollar buildings and budgets. For others, uh, I think success is a well-polished pastor and a a professional uh, worship uh, team. I think still others argue, Will, uh, that success is all about beginning and maintaining and growing large assortments of uh, exciting programs that include outstanding programs for children and music and youth. I could go on and on on that. But perhaps uh, the most common and the most frequent argument for what is a true successful, a truly successful church, even among pastors, I think, is how big is the church? What's the size of the church? And I would ask you at the front of the sermon, uh, is it really a solid guarantee that just because a church is large that it is healthy? If if someone eats several pounds of uh, cheesecake every day, I can guarantee you they're gonna get large, but uh, that certainly doesn't mean that they're going to be healthy. And I know of plenty of churches, large churches, that from the outside appear very, very successful. But honestly, I would question sometimes as to whether or not they are operating the way God intended. And I know of several small churches as well. Uh, They are considered the faithful guardians of the truth, and they're nothing more than really social clubs today. And the reverse is also true. I think that there are plenty of churches that are both large and small but uh, the, that are doing great work for advancing the kingdom of God. So I would pause here again and ask, well what does define a successful church? And here's the best definition that I'm going to run with today for success in my heart in my mind. It is fulfilling a fulfilling, a fulfillment of the purpose for which God Intense. Okay? It's fulfilling the purpose for which God intended. Ultimately, our success is not based whether we're large or small on the world's standards, but rather on our obedience to do what God has commanded in His will, as well as our faithfulness, as we've been hearing through the book of Acts, of carrying out our God given mission of bearing witness of. Uh, both in word and in deed, as individuals and as a church, of the truth and hope that we have in Jesus until he returns again. With that thought in mind, I would like to look today at today's text in Acts 2, and I want to read out loud verses 42 through 47. Would you please follow along with me in your Bibles? Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, Verse 46 says, "Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." This, dear friends, is the word of the Lord. I want to start out by asking the question: Who are the they referred to here in verse 42? Some of you may recall that in last week's sermon at the day of Pentecost, that after a single inspired by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit sermon, Peter shared with a group, a large group of the devout Jews from all over every nation and more than 3,000 people accepted God's offer of redemption through Jesus Christ. Talk about an exhilarating uh, growth spurt, right? Uh, in just a couple of hours, this small church of about 120 people swelled to over 3,000. And you've got to ask yourself, as I did, well, how in the world could this church, this newly formed church, sustain itself, possibly care for all that many people? Honestly, if it were up to human ability, up to human wisdom, I believe if that was all we had to count on, we probably would the church would have folded immediately right then and there. But scripture tells us as we read here in this text that the church didn't fold at all. In fact, it flourished, and how did that happen? And that's kind of the, the topic of today's sermon. I want to share four practical thoughts with you all derived from our text here this morning on how God allowed this church to flourish. However, before I jump into the text and those four thoughts, I believe there are two quick observations, foundational observations, that I need to make. First, I want to share with you that there are many believers who feel that what's written here in these final verses of Acts chapter 2 is a prescription, or it's a required mode of operation for every church in every age. But the truth is, as I think about that, when you consider the amount of details that God provided for the Jews and and the uh, Israelites uh, regarding the worship in the Old Testament, it it blows my mind. It would surprise me. Uh, It surprises me how little information really were given in the book of Acts about things like the order of worship or the music or the dress or sermon content and and ordinances. And thus, I believe Acts 2... You know, I do not believe Acts 2 is purely descriptive, and by that I mean that it possesses no relevance for churches today, and nor do I feel that it's uh, so prescriptive that uh, every uh, New Testament church needs to look exactly like it. What I do want to present to you today is I believe the content here in Acts 2 portrays several uh, priorities, several devotions that I believe all healthy churches, churches who wish to be in in God's will and function in accordance to the way God created us will be participating in those four things. The second observation and and one of the reasons I'm saying the second or that first point is because of the words devoting themselves in verse 42. In the original Greek language here, this phrase actually is a translation of one single compound Greek verb, and it literally means to endure or to be wholeheartedly committed to. So as we look at these characteristics, that's the word that, uh, that Luke uses here to describe what I consider four devotions, if you're taking notes, four devotions of a church that's committed to doing church God's way, as God intends. And the first thing we note here in verse 42 is a church that is committed to operate and function the way God intends for it to function is to be that they need to be devoted to studying and living out God's word. We need to be studying as well as living out God's word. Literally, it says here that these early believers were devoting, remember what that word means, wholeheartedly committed to the teaching of the apostles. Now, what exactly does that phrase mean? What is the teaching of the apostles? Well, let me remind you here that at this point, in this moment in church history, the 27 books that we call the New Testament didn't even exist at this point. And in fact, the apostle Paul, who wrote some 28% of the New Testament, hadn't even been converted to Christianity. So the basis or the instruction that the apostles were sharing here with these young believers were oral teachings i believe coming from the lips of the apostle and these young believers as you look at the text here were literally hanging on to and every word they had such a hunger they were hanging on to this teaching so what were they teaching them well i think it's safe to assume that they were teaching them the very words and teachings of jesus all of the apostles after all including this newly appointed matthias had been with jesus the entirety of his earthly ministry and additionally let me let, let's not forget here that for 40 days after his death and resurrection, Jesus walked the earth demonstrating to all who saw him that he indeed conquered sin and death, but he also took that time to teach how the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets, and the poetic books all pointed to him. Let me also remind you that according to John chapter 14, 26, when Jesus was promising the disciples that the Holy Spirit was coming, one of the roles he would have, look at verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, look, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so we can be certain, I believe, that the apostles were teaching these 3,000 young believers plus the Old Testament in light of the life and the, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But more than just receiving these words from the apostles, these believers were retaining them. And more importantly, I believe they were acting on them. As Peter instructs us in First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies, these new believers were longing for the pure milk of the word so that by it, they might grow in respect to salvation. In the same way, brothers and sisters uh, of, uh, of in Christ here at Chantilly Bible Church, if we hope. If, and we desire to establish an, an environment where all of our relationships are, uh, are are healthy, not only with each other, but with God, then we must uh, center our lives and our ministries upon the authority and the authenticity of God's word. We need to not only know the word, we need to not only teach the word, but we need to be living it out in everything that we do. And that brings me to the second point here. A church that's committed, to what God wants the church to be must also be devoted second to sharing our everyday lives together. We need to be sharing our everyday lives together. Now when we see the word fellowship as we do in our text here, our minds generally race to thoughts of uh, casual conversations and social events. We always have food in every fellowship that we have and fun. And uh, and although uh, biblical fellowship could include all of those things, when I read this text, I can't help but see that the depth of the relationships that Luke is describing here that these people had with God and with each other is far deeper than what I think we think of when it comes to fellowship. In fact, the Greek word for fellowship here in verse 42 is koinonia. It has the idea of belonging or sharing uh, uh, to each other, belonging to each other. And, uh, and that's what we see these believers genuinely doing and displaying. Look at verses 44 through 47 again. All who believed, writes Luke here, were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. As any had need, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. What practically speaking, as we think about this biblical demonstration of what fellowship looks like, what will it look like if we seek to apply that definition here among our relationships and our ministries at Chantilly Bible Church? Here's some thoughts. Clearly, biblical fellowship includes unselfish love. It includes honest sharing. It includes practical assistance of needs within the body. It's sacrificially giving. Uh, to one another. It's systematically taking the time to comfort one another as needs arise. It's consistently, it's it's generously, cheerfully, and sacrificially giving of our time and our resources for those in need within the body as God lays it on our heart. Many of these concepts, many of the principles that I just spouted to you on what genuine fellowship are all kind of captured in the more than 50 plus one another's of scripture. Things like serve one another, or love one another, or bear one another's burden, or forgive one another, just to name a few, they're they're captured in those commands. And here's the thing as I think about the one another's of scripture. Three things instantly are communicated to my heart that are very applicable to what I think Luke is writing here. First, I would say to you that we cannot live the Christian life on our own. It's never been God's intention. The second thing I see here is the Christian life cannot, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, be restricted to a -a once-a-week meeting. I believe it goes beyond that. And third, our personal relationship with Jesus Christ radically, radically reorients us in our relationships with one another and with God. Please note that the one another's are not just busy add-ons, as we have busy lives here, they are the overflow, I believe, and the expressions of love and life that we share with one another in Jesus Christ. And that is what I understand the meaning of fellowship that God intends for our church to understand, to demonstrate, and to experience. These believers were clearly committed to one another and to Christ and experiencing life together. And I believe it was for the long haul. That's the type of fellowship that I believe God intends for his church to experience. Third, a church committed to what God wants his church to be must be devoted to celebrating communion and sharing meals together. Celebrating communion and sharing meals together. And I derive this third point from the phrase breaking bread, in verse 42. You see, while this phrase is frequently a reference to the Lord's table or communion, Luke may have in mind here also ordinary common meals with other believers as well. Let's talk for a few moments about the Lord's table and communion. Why is this ordinance so vitally important a component to a church that wants to function as God intends? And I have several practical reasons. Think about these with me for a moment. First, simply because Jesus commands it. If we want to be obedient to Christ, then we're going to practice communion. Observe it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12, Jesus tells his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. That's not an option as far as I'm concerned. Second, if observed properly, this is a time of refocusing and confession for us personally. I can't tell you the number of times as I'm sitting where you're sitting and I'm preparing my heart to participate in the Lord's table and we're asked to let God search your heart, how many times God has brought to my heart and to my remembrance things that I needed to confess that I was ignoring or conveniently choosing to forget, especially when it comes to the area of broken relationship. Pride is an ugly thing, isn't it? And communion brings us face to face with that and it gives us a chance to deal with it as God wants us. Third, Communion is a time of remembrance and of thanksgiving. It is a time of remembrance and thanksgiving. During the celebration of the Lord's table, scripture urges us to take some serious time to meditate on and to give thanks to all that God has graciously done for us to provide salvation through his substitutionary death and costly death of his son on the cross of Calvary. That blows my mind. There's no room for pride when you realize that, right? Fourth, The celebration of the Lord's table is a time for us to visually be reminded that in spite of many different generations that exist in this room, economic classes and cultures and personalities, we share a common union in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we are holding the bread and holding the cup, we are reminded that we have a common identity, first and foremost, as being lost sinners who have been redeemed by the grace and love of Jesus Christ. If we have trusted in Jesus, we have, no matter where we are, who we are or what we have done or what's been done to us, Jesus uh, has saved a seat for us at his table, and he invites us to come and sit with him at this table. What an awesome gift God has given us in in this uh, ordinance. Fifth, according to Jesus Christ, the celebration of the Lord's table is a proclamation that as surely as Jesus arose from the grave, he will return again. Is it any wonder why Christ himself included uh, the Lord's table as an important part of the worship that he intends his people to experience together? Looking back now at verse 46, Let's dig in a little bit at the daily practice of breaking bread and taking meals together from house to house. Clearly, I look at that pex, and I believe that it points to the fact that a critical component of a church that wants to function and be operating as God intended will have um, hospitality is a very important point in their lives. In fact, hospitality is a practice that is both commanded and commended throughout the scripture. Uh, One example, 1 Peter chapter 4 Verses 8 and 9 says this, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable, that's an imperative, to one another without complaint. And I don't know how many of you realize it, but if you look carefully at the qualifications of a pastor or an elder, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and Titus chapter 1, verse 8, God made the practice of hospitality hospitality one of the qualifications for those who serve in pastoral leadership in a church. And I will never forget the sermon a few months back by Pastor John Um, where he reminded us how over and over again in the course of his ministry, Jesus repeatedly created sacred places over the table, the dinner table, ministering to uh, the hurting as well as delivering uh, understanding to the proud. And thus I would submit to you, brothers and sisters in Christ today, that if we want to build our church on the priorities of God's heart as he intended, we need to have a heart for hospitality. With that thought in mind, let me give you some thoughts here. Some people say it's great talking about hospitality, but can I give you some practical thoughts to join me in praying and application here? First, um, pray. Begin praying and ask God, beginning in your heart, to give us as a congregation open hearts, open hands, and open homes. Um, the second thing here, and I love when Pastor John gets up and says, Good morning, church. Uh, is to recognize that every one of us who considers Chantilly Bible Church, our church family, we are all members of the welcome team. Like it or not, we are all members of the welcome team. And practically speaking, that means that if we are in the middle of a conversation with someone we know very well and we see a guest walking in, we will take the opportunity to excuse ourselves from that conversation, and I believe we will initiate a meeting, a greeting, and a welcoming to that person. And better yet, not just do it ourselves, but we'll bring that person that we're talking with to meet them as well. Uh, imagine if every week we all had as a goal to meet a new person and welcome them. What a difference it would make in our church. So. Listen to Romans chapter 15. I know I've seen this verse a 100 times before, but Romans 15 verse 7 says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory, the glory of God. And I say that, you know, that kind of welcome calls for not just the task of the greeters in our church or the welcome team alone, but the entire church. And I, I believe it's not an event to welcome somebody, but it has to be an ongoing way of life for our church if we intend to be all God wants us to be. Third, this is, a, this is a challenging one, but I remember this being very effective in my childhood in our home church. We were encouraged to go ahead and prepare extra food on Sunday, set a couple places at your table, and when you get to church, look around for someone to invite to your home for a meal. You're going, ah! <laughs> But what a statement of blessing that is, especially to somebody new in our church. Here's an important one. When it comes to hospitality, let me say fourth, aim for warm rather than wow. You hear that? Aim for warm rather than wow. I share this fourth point because when I talked to someone this week about I was going to preach on hospitality, she admitted to me that she hasn't been interested in any kind of hospitality for so long because the thoughts of inviting someone into her home sends her into a cleaning frenzy for the whole week, and and, and basically she's on edge for the whole week until that event is over. Uh, But I say to you, when it comes to serving brothers and sisters in Christ, we are family, right? Keep it simple. Uh, don't try, let go of trying to be perfect, and don't worry about how big or extravagant your house is or how big your table settings are and how beautiful. Just be present. Be present and be warm. Make yourself available to God to be in loving arms and, 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 and care for that person. When it comes to biblical fellowship, we want our homes to be a place of rejoicing and weeping, a time of celebration and sorrow joy and tears for our family, right? For those who have not yet embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior, we want our homes to be a safe place for expressing their doubts or asking questions or winsomely sharing the good news of the gospel, both in the way we treat them and with our words. The bottom line is this. This is what I summarize. In, the, in Christian hospitality, our homes are viewed as an outpost for God's kingdom. Spaces and places where God tugs at a heart, at a heart towards His glory. Now that I've made everybody really hungry by showing you all that food, looking back at verse forty-two here, uh, a church that's committed to what uh, you know want to be what God wants us to be, forth is corporately seeking God in prayer. I believe that a church that is devoted to the heart of God is one that corporately is seeking God in prayer. Now, I am not disparaging personal, private prayer. However, as I look at the book of Acts, and we've been reading through it often to try to keep everything in a flow here as pastors, Acts overwhelmingly connects the mighty works of God, the wonders of God, uh, coming through the unified corporate prayers of God's people and his church. In Acts chapter 2, you'll remember that it was the gathering of 120 followers in the upper room, It said they were praying in one accord, waiting in obedience for the Holy Spirit to be given. In Acts chapter 4, which Pastor Mike will share next week, uh, Peter and John come and report to the church the threats of the Sanhedrin. You know what the church did? They gathered, and they cried out to God with one accord for boldness, and it says the place was shaken when they prayed. In Acts chapter six, we see the church gathering together and praying for seven men appointed by the elders to serve as deacons. In Acts chapter 12, we find James uh, was martyred and Peter was imprisoned by Herod. And the church, what did they do? They fervently gathered and they prayed and God miraculously delivered Peter from prison. Acts chapter 13, we'll see how the prophets and the teachers in the church of Antioch, they got together and they prayed and they fasted and God raised up Paul. And Barnabas and sent them on their mission trip, their very first mission trip. These prayers of these early believers remind us that corporate prayer is a statement of our collective dependence on God, and, and and it's a weapon, a power that binds us together with accomplishing God's will in our church. And there are many opportunities for us to try, to pray. Uh, corporately in our church. Um, for example, we have a weekly prayer guide that goes out every week and it's an opportunity to pray very specifically for the needs of our body here. Saturday morning virtual prayer time, 8.30 to 9.15. Very little energy required, but opportunity to jump online and pray together. What a sweet time of fellowship. Ask anybody that's part of that. We had a men's prayer fellowship yesterday and the women have those as well and our community groups should be a place where prayer is uh, devoted to among the folks. So please uh, consider how important corporate prayer is in, in our hearts here. Well, so far, let me summarize where we've been. The church that's committed to what God desires the church to be wholeheartedly committed to is gonna be studying and living out God's word, okay? They're gonna be sharing our everyday lives together. We're going to be celebrating communion and sharing meals together. And we're going to be corporately seeking God in prayer. So what's going to be the impact? Well, we get a glimpse of that. What's going to be the fruit of a church that's committed to those priorities? The first thing we see in verse 43 is fear. Let me explain that. The actual meaning of the word uh, for all translated here in verse 43 is phobos, from which we get our word fear. And according to Luke, we see that the power of the Holy Spirit was so pronounced, so astonishingly present in that church, that there was a continual sense of awe and wonder that was produced in the hearts of every soul, it says, both inside and outside the church. Fear is the first qual- uh, first uh, impact. Second impact, verse 45 there was a definite sense of free handedness. Look at verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Pastor John read Acts chapter four, which is the companion passage for this week. Verse 34, it says there was not a needy person among them. What a beautiful illustration, I think, of the instructions that are presented in 1 John three, verses 16 through 18. As I put them up, let's read them together, can we? By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or truth, i talk, but in deed and truth. Powerful. Now, I've got to be honest with you when we read passages like this in Acts 2 or we read a passage like this, I think there's an, our first inclination might be to bristle up a little bit. Why do I say that? Because most of us are middle-class, 21st century Christians, and we've collected a bunch of stuff. We have a lot of belongings. Just look at all the self-storage markets that are booming over the last past decade. 4,000 square foot homes, and we still can't put all our stuff in it. And that's why a passage like this one, I think, is very uh, uh, threatening to us. Now you could say, well, Milt, uh, you just said it isn't actually a command. We don't have to sell all our possessions and assist others in need. It's simply a description, right? And and that would be true. That would be true, because there is no coercion here. There is no manipulation here. Nor do we get the idea that they were being forced or commanded that all Christians sell everything to live in uh, communes here. This was simply the outworking of the Holy Spirit in the lives of this church. But before we dismiss these verses too quickly, let me remind all of us that Luke, under under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe is providing a description of the early church. And I think it's to commend them and recognize the spirit of Jesus working in them in this magnificent, completely counter-cultural way. These, uh, these early disciples were so connected. They loved each other so much. They could not bear to see a brother or sister in need and at the same time hold on and cling to their own possessions. And so as we respond to this as an application, I want to caution us uh, against getting defensive. And I also don't want us to remove the stinger out of this passage quickly. But instead, may I humbly suggest, all of us, myself included, that we should sink through and ponder in our hearts by asking what would it look like if you or I were to be able to give more generously to the needs of others. You see, while it's true that God isn't calling us to sell everything or all our possessions, I do believe it is healthy for us to consider what can I do to create more margin in my budget so that I can give more generously. Because the truth be told, Especially living in this area, many believers today have so maxed out themselves with their own personal spending that even if they see a need or there's a mission or a ministry opportunity for them to give, they they don't have the margins to give. I'm just asking us all to humbly go before God and ask if we can be more generous with the things he's given us. A fourth fruit, verse 46. The word gladness here in verse 46 is a pretty mild translation. And so I've chosen the, the, to give the word felicity as a characteristic because uh, this is a pretty Greek word, a big Greek word. It means intense joy, it means extreme gladness. This Greek word is often involved with verbal expressions of praise the Lord or, or uh, expressions of jumping for joy here. And so this isn't, yeah, I'm happy. This is a woohoo kind of thing, okay? I'm overjoyed and that joy comes from the same place that genuine worship comes from, from a thankful redeemed heart Do we have that kind of joy today. The fourth uh, impact or fruit I see in verse 47 is they were experiencing God's favor and that's the Greek word here, charis, which means grace. Look at what it says here, praising God and having favor with all the people. Very soon, as we're going to see, as we continue in our study of the book of Acts, this favor is going to change to persecution, because these religious leaders are going to do everything they can in Jerusalem to stomp out Christ's influence on the people. Okay, But at this point, these believers, they were so steady in their faith. They were so spirit-empowered. They were so unselfish to one another, so unified and so loving to each other. I want you to see that it aroused not only curiosity, but also an admiration of believers, uh, that, and, and non-believers is like. I mean, there, there was something magnetic about this church that was contagious. It was irresistible, the kind of church everybody wants to be a part of. I heard a pastor on the radio this week who said, our witness aids in our witness. Our witness aids in our witness. I hope that's true of Chantilly Bible Church. And that's the final result here, final fruit. Fifth, the impact we see is faith. Verse 47 says, God was adding to their numbers daily. Now, was that because of a great senior pastor? No, there weren't no such critters at that time. Okay? Was it because they had great greeters at the door of the church? Well, they didn't even have a building. Was it the outstanding children and youth and music ministries? No, they didn't even have classrooms or a stage to stand on. To me, the difference these believers uh, wasn't wasn't that they were just going to church, they were being the church. These believers were not just going to church, they were being the church. Simply stated, they, in my mind and heart, were fulfilling the purpose for which God intended. And I would consider them a successful church. And as a result, don't miss this, God was adding to their numbers daily and that remains just as true today. You see, when people feel loved and cared for, when they're being taught and they're growing in their faith in the word of God, when they feel a solid sense of fellowship, where the love and the grace and the generosity of God is flowing, people will come. And not only will they come, they'll stay, and they'll bring others into the fellowship. Folks, that is how God intends for his church to be established. And that is how he intends for it to grow, too. And it's all, all for his glory. Absolutely everything. So let's not forget that this is true, because when we don't remember it's God that adds to our numbers, the pitfalls are immense and compromise, I believe, is inevitable. As we prepare now for the Lord's table and we think about all these thoughts about this church, uh, this early church, I want to remind you today a couple of weeks ago, I was reminding you that um, Jesus' death was timed perfectly. It was time to take place on the uh, Passover time frame when God's people were sacrificing their lambs. And joining with his disciples in the upper room, we're told that they celebrated the Passover feast together. And Jesus introduced something new there. Remember that? He's offering a remembrance for the future. It's in a meal that we, that we call Communion today. It's a reminder of the new covenant that we have by the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine together. It's a reminder of the death and resurrection of our Savior. As we gather around this table today, we're reminded that taking upon himself, uh, Jesus took upon himself our sin, our guilt, our lawlessness, and our condemnation. Uh, Jesus, a sinless lamb, he went to the cross and he died in our place and for our sins. But afterwards, as Pastor Mike reminded us last week, to prove that he had paid the price in full, that sin and death were forever defeated, the spotless Lamb of God rose again. And as a result, as we place our trust in Jesus, uh, all those horrible things that Jesus took upon Himself, He paid for and in exchange God has imputed to us Christ perfection, Christ sinlessness, and Christ righteousness and victories. As we partake of the Lord's table today, um, this is a special meal for believers. And I want to challenge anyone who's a believer here to please, uh, invite everyone to, uh, to be a part of that. But even for believers, the scriptures say those who participate in communion should do a heart check. And that's what I want to allow time to do. Uh, have you truly trusted in Jesus as your Savior? And if you are a believer... Are you living out your faith and active relationship with God and allowing him to mature you and grow you to be all that God wants? Um, What about your relationships with other people? Are there areas that you need to confess? For God says in his word that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. I'm going to go ahead and pray. I'm going to invite those that are going to be serving the Lord's table and the musicians to come back up. I'm going to go ahead and pray but I encourage you in your seats to take some time to let God search your heart. Any areas that you need, you realize it's hindering you from enjoying the fellowship, you you should. You'll be able to confess that. And then as you feel ready, the uh, elements are at the different tables. Please get up and go and get your elements. Come back to your seats and then we'll partake of the Lord's table together. Let me go ahead and pray. Father, as we now spend this time, celebrating uh, communion together. I pray you open our hearts towards others and towards you. Lord, would you help us to be one heart and of one mind with those within the body, generous in our giving, glad to participate in uh, caring for and helping one another, and Lord, in taking the gospel to the othermost parts of the world. Thank you, Father, for the warmth of your spirit and for the power and grace that is among us because of his presence. If there's anything, Lord, now hindering us, from fully experiencing the uh, fellowship you desire and keeps us from serving you as you desire. Please help us to see it now and confess it to you. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.